There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Long, slim, and lethal, the Colt Walker was America's first six-shooter. It could kill a man or a horse with a single bullet. Gunmaker Samuel Colt had gone out of business when Captain Samuel Walker of the Texas Rangers pitched him an idea for a revolver that would reload faster than any other. The Rangers placed an order for the first thousand guns, establishing the Colt Walker as the weapon of choice in the West. Walker carried two of his brand new revolvers into the war with Mexico in 1847, but he was killed in battle not long after receiving them. Colt became one of the wealthiest men in America. This week, the Colt Walker joined the Lone Star flag, the pecan tree, and Longhorn cattle as a symbol of Texas, after legislators declared it the state's first official handgun. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what does Republican strength in Texas mean for national politics? The Texas legislature only meets every two years. Its latest session is wrapping up after passing the most conservative program for a generation. The enduring Republican strength in Texas is striking when set against the fallout from the Trump presidency. It also upsets predictions that demographic changes would favor Democrats in the South. What can Texas Republicans teach the National Party? With me to discuss all of this is John Fasman, the U.S. digital editor, and Alexandra Switch-Bass. Alexandra writes about politics, technology, society from her base in Dallas, where she covers Texas for The Economist. Alexandra, how are you doing? I'm doing well, John. Uh, it's been a week that's been switching between torrential rain and oppressive heat. So I guess summer in Texas has arrived. How are you? I'm just fine, thanks. How about you, Fasman? I'm very well. I've been in Atlanta this week, where, as you know, I, I lived and wrote for you for about four and a half years. Uh, it has been great to be back in my, in my adopted home. And uh, you should see the fruits of my reporting by Monday morning, I hope. Well, I'm looking forward to that. But th this week's Economist, the lead note is about the Texas legislature and Texas politics. And it's written by Alexandra. Texas is, of course, important for many reasons. But one is that it's the biggest state that remains locked in for Republicans. And, and as the state gets bigger, more populous, the National Party will rely even more than it already does on its staying red. 
For Republicans, winning the Electoral College in a presidential race and, more urgently, regaining control of Congress next year depends on them piling up votes in Texas. So, Alexandra, who have you been speaking to while you were doing your reporting for this week's story? I've been speaking to a lot of Texas watchers, uh, and one of my favorite sources is Mark Jones, who's a professor of politics at Rice University. This is what he told me about what's been going on at the Texas legislature in the last few weeks. We were all thinking that this session was going to be really focused on really trying to figure out how do we cut the budget or raise revenue and deal with things that are of primary importance to regular Texans. Once, though, the controller released uh, his statement in January that the budget was fine and that there was nothing really to worry about, especially with the prospect of a lot of federal money coming into the state, that allowed the legislature, particularly some of the Republicans, to shift away from bread and butter issues to the red meat issues that they know their base loves. Anti-abortion legislation with the heartbeat bill, pro-Second Amendment rights legislation with the constitutional carry. On the cultural front, they tried to give them anti-transgender legislation, but that was blocked by the speaker. And they'll probably give them some type of election integrity legislation that will make it more difficult for people to vote, but will placate some of the demands among Republicans for efforts to prevent uh, electoral fraud, which even though it didn't occur in Texas, many Republicans, uh, actually a majority of Republicans in Texas, believe it occurred. And how should we interpret this session? If this last legislative session was a set of tea leaves, how should we be reading them about the future of Texas? In 2018, we had a very unique election in Texas where Beto O'Rourke ran for U.S. Senate against Ted Cruz and came very close to defeating him. At that time, Democrats uh, were able to flip 12 Texas House seats and two U.S. House seats. That really chastened the Republican Party. And we saw them come into the 2019 legislative session putting aside and eschewing really any red meat issues and focusing on bread and butter issues that are of importance to the population. In 2020, Democrats believed that they had the prospect of flipping the Texas House and making substantial inroads in terms of flipping U.S. House seats as well and potentially winning the state. They failed dismally across the board. Democrats forget that one of the big reasons that they did so well in 2018 was that President Trump wasn't on the ballot. They were able to use him to mobilize Democrats to vote for the Democratic candidates. In 2020, Trump was on the ballot. So while they were still able to mobilize Democrats to vote uh, against him, many Republicans turned out to vote for him. And therefore, Republicans were able to stop any of the bleeding that had occurred in 2018. Right now, Republicans are feeling pretty good and of the belief that anything they do this session uh, is unlikely to come back to haunt them in November of 2022. They're going to be able to control the drawing of the legislative districts to make them much safer. And at the, at the statewide level, they're going to be able to campaign against the Biden administration that is adopting many policies that are not popular with the majority of Texans. Alexandra, one of the things that was different about the Republican Party when Donald Trump was president, I think, was that there was a bit less emphasis on some of the culture war issues, particularly, I think, abortion and guns. This session of the Texas legislature, in a way, seems like a bit of a throwback. Tell us a bit more about the guns law that passed and the abortion law, please. 
Yes. Well, in past legislative sessions, you've always seen what people here call red meat issues. But in the past, bills like the ones we've seen now uh, being signed into law on abortion and the permitless carry of handguns probably wouldn't have even gotten a hearing. So it shows how much things have changed. The abortion law is one of the most extreme in the country. It bans abortion as early as six weeks with no exception for rape or incest. The permitless carry law, or as um, proponents like to call it constitutional carry, allows people to carry around a handgun with no permit, background check, fingerprinting, or training. And it's really surprising that it got through, in part because law enforcement has been so strongly against it. Police officers are concerned that it makes their jobs even less safe. Uh, Yet the base, which is very enthusiastic about guns and gun rights, really pushed it. Um, And I think it was actually a surprise to many legislators that it actually got through. Some thought they were just signaling their support for gun rights uh, and were surprised that it made it all. the way to the governor's desk. Alexandra, I've seen polling that shows that permitless carry bill was unpopular, not just with law enforcement, but with the majority of voters. I wonder if there's a sense in Texas that that the GOP is sort of doing to itself what it did to itself nationally with Trump, which is sort of increase the control of a small share of the population. Do you get the sense the Texas Republicans are concerned about appealing to the broader electorate, or are they really just listening to the base? And if the latter is true, then what do you think their their electoral future is in the state over the next five, ten years? You're right. I mean, the polling shows that for overall voters, only 34% are in favor of permitless carry, 59% against. Even among Republicans, 39% don't want to see it. 56% of Republicans in Texas say they support it. So I think that's a great example of how the priorities that this legislature has taken up, the session, uh, are really pandering to the base and not to the public. So I think you're seeing the schism between the party and the public. A lot of this has to do with 2022 and signaling for primary campaigns that Republicans are on the right and advocating the interests of their base. Uh, They worry more about someone challenging them on the right than they do on running against a Democrat. So everyone is wanting to make sure that no one can outflank them from the right. I think that this shows that you are not going to see mainstream or moderate interests taken up, at least in the near term. All of Texas's senators are running for re-election in 2022. We see a Republican lock on redistricting. But I think that this the politics of polarization and extremism are playing out in Texas in a pretty pronounced way. Um, That, of course, is not only true of Texas. We see this nationally as well. But I think it's especially true in Texas. And Alexandra, the way that polarization looks in Texas, the way political power is distributed, you have Republicans in charge of all the statewide offices and Democrats running the big cities and the school boards in Houston, Dallas, Austin, One of the themes of the legislative session which you've written about this week is that of statewide Republicans trying to exercise control over those local offices in in cities, even though Republicans are meant to be philosophically committed to localised control. Can you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yes, it used to be a conservative value and a Republican value that the best sort of governance was done by uh, government entities that were closest to citizens. That is no longer the case. And we've seen that in a lot of different bills. We've seen it with the state trying to stop cities allowing homeless encampments from cities and counties defunding police. And we've seen that, I think, with the voting bill, with the state trying to tell counties where they're allowed to have polling places and the hours by which they're able to operate. I spoke with Lena Hidalgo, who's the county judge in Harris County, which covers Houston. She's effectively the chief executive of the third largest county in the United States. And she won in 2018, unexpectedly unseating a Republican. She's very forceful about criticizing the voting bill because she feels like it's directly targeting Harris County and her constituents. We created these innovations last year, drive-through voting, 24-hour voting, that they want to do away with. Uh, We created a smart system to allocate polling locations and voting machines, which meant in the largest election we'd ever seen, we functionally had no lines. And they're looking to micromanage how we distribute the locations and the machines in a way that would inevitably create long lines. It's not so much about the specific provisions. These decisions are being made based on this this idea that the election system itself is broken. It's a problematic idea that weakens the standing of our democracy in the eyes of our own citizens and in the eyes of the world. So one joke that I've heard over the past couple of years about these sorts of preemption bills that state legislatures have been passing to block cities from enacting their own laws is that Republicans were all for local control until they couldn't control the locals. So, Alexandra, I wonder, in your view, how deep is the rift between Texas's cities and state legislature, and and how much does it and will it define state politics in the coming years? Uh, I think that it's going to be one of the major themes in Texas and with pretty significant consequences for those governing the cities and for citizens, too. I think it remains to be seen how impactful the voting bill will be. Already, Texas has a lot of restrictions in place around voting, um, but anything that suppresses the vote could be consequential for Democrats. Uh, As it relates to the conflicts between cities and the state, I think you're only going to see these battles continue and sharpen. A session ago, uh, the proposals were, I think, a little bit milder than we're seeing. I think the state is even more emboldened in what it thinks it should be controlling. Um, And I think a really striking example of that is the state is saying that cities should not be allowed to set their own minimum wages or paid sick leave. Um, This is an example, I think, of the state siding with business, but also working against the interest of citizens. And that's going to be one of the key questions for voters is, will they react to a state government that is not necessarily advocating for individual interests? Okay, thank you both. We'll look back on the pivotal moment when Republicans first got a lock on statewide office in Texas in just a moment. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. Our Lexington column this week profiles Kamala Harris. We look at whether COVID came from a lab 
and there's a lovely obituary of Yuang Longping, the godfather of rice. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. Texas that offers my grandchildren, your children and grandchildren, a future that is as good and as fine and as glorious as our past was. By the end of her first term in 1994, Governor Ann Richards was a role model for moderate Democrats. Tough, elegant and quick-witted, she championed diversity and a vibrant economy. Personal attacks will not solve our crime problem in Texas. Personal attacks will not improve our schools. And personal attacks will not reform the welfare system. Richard's Republican opponent was a political novice, a baffled-looking failed congressional candidate whose CV ran out after his surname. Bush for governor. Disney's Lion King played packed cinemas that election season. George W. Bush was also trying to make his mark after years in the wilderness and to avenge his father. I'm delighted to be here with you this evening because after listening to George Bush all these years, I figured you needed to know what a real Texas accent sounds like. Richards' mistake, like a movie villain, was to taunt and misunderestimate him. She had made her mark at the 1988 Democratic Convention by lampooning Bush Sr. He was born with a silver foot in his mouth. The same year President Bush was deposed by Bill Clinton, 1992, the political consultant Karl Rove noticed demographic shifts in Texas that would soon favor Republicans. He convinced George W. Bush that Ann Richards was vulnerable and prepared a simple script for his campaign. Texas governor's debate between George W. Bush and Ann Richards. Richards was expecting to win by pointing out Bush's past failures, but Bush himself resisted what he called old-style Texas mudslinging and defied expectations. Well spoken, Governor. Bush's platform and personality projected compassion. He set out plans to reform education, welfare, and juvenile justice. Meanwhile, Rove devised below-the-radar messages on guns and gays, targeting conservative voters in East Texas. Interviewed on the campaign trail, Bush said, my father let Bill Clinton decide what issues the two of them were going to talk about. That was a major mistake. His audacious attempt restored his family's pride in a Disneyish denouement. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. On election day, Bush won over 53% of the vote. Richards had sown the seeds for her own defeat by attracting new businesses to Texas. Bush piled up votes in the suburbs that had sprung up around Dallas, Fort Worth, and Houston. What Texans can dream, Texans can do. 1994 was a watershed for Texas Republicans. They haven't lost a statewide election since, condemning the state's Democrats to a circle of strife. Texas is ready for a new generation of leadership, and I will provide 
Alexandra, one of the things that's always puzzled me about Texas going red, going Republican in the 90s, is that the story that I've been told, and which I believe, about how politics was changed in America by the passage of the Civil Rights Act, you know, Democrats and Republicans essentially swapped places, swapped territory. Um, but that happened in the 60s, the passage of the Civil Rights Act, and it, and it takes you know, almost 30 years for this change to play out. So, so why does it take such a long time? You know, is the story about the centrality of the Civil Rights Act correct, or is there something else going on that explains why Texas becomes so Republican in the 90s? I think it's a complicated question, but I think a lot does have to do with the Democratic Party pushing to the left, which is a story that has reverberations today. But in the 1970s, you saw the conversations that Democrats were holding not necessarily resonating with Texans. It is a gradual shift, um, and it, it took to the 90s and early 2000s for, for the change to be made. And then it was cemented ultimately by redistricting um, and the idea of Karl Rove to kind of redo Texan districts in a way that ensured Republican dominance going forward. And I think that uh, that accounts for a lot of the reason you see such strong control. We underestimate the role that redistricting has played in the political land in Texas. It's true that Texas is a conservative state and those who are Democrat are relatively moderate Democrats, but a lot has to do with the way that their voting districts are are shaped um, and the opportunities they have to elect people. I think that's absolutely right. I think you can't underestimate the role that redistricting plays in, in cementing a party's control. I also think to John's original question, that there's no doubt that it was the civil rights legislation of the mid-60s and more broadly the Democrats' positions on civil rights that drove partisan realignment. But you've got to, in asking why it took so long, I mean, I think you've got to put yourself in the mindset of someone from the mid-60s, a conservative Southern Democrat from the mid-60s. The idea of aligning yourself with the party of Abraham Lincoln and what they thought of as federal tyranny was just unthinkable to a lot of people. And so it's easy to say now that it should have happened quickly, but you're dealing with sentiments that have been ingrained over generations, and you're also dealing with the sort of power structures and political structures that had been designed by the Democratic Party in Southern states for the Democratic Party. And both of those things just take a very long time to change. I, I would say that the Democrats who have done well in Texas have historically been moderate. And you saw this in 2018 when Beto O'Rourke was running for U.S. Senate. Uh, he was running as a Democrat, but you wouldn't have known it in any of his campaign speeches. You, I, I went to some of them and he talked about, you know, everyone being included. Um, he really spoke from the center. And then, of course, he completely changed when he was running in the Democratic primary and talked about confiscating semi-automatic weapons. And that would never appeal to to Texans, that Beto O'Rourke. But it's the center candidates who do. Um, and I think in some ways that's why, contrary to expectation, Democrats did not do better in 2020 in Texas because the national party had pushed farther to a, the left in a way that was not attractive to Texas voters. Alexandra, you mentioned the role of Karl Rove and Tom DeLay in redistricting in Texas politics and how important that was in the shift in the 90s and 
and it through into the 2000s. There's a special session in the autumn of the Texas legislature, which will be redistricting again. And Texas is going to get a couple of extra congressional seats because of the 2020 census. How do you expect that redistricting to go? How far will Republicans in the state legislature be able to push their advantage and and lock it in um, structurally over the next decade in that redistricting session, do you think? The 2020 election was pivotal for Democrats uh, if they wanted to exert influence on redistricting. They did not take the Texas House as they had expected. And so Republican control and power in the redistricting process is going to be really significant. It's worth noting that this will be the first session for redistricting since the Voting Rights Act was weakened by the Supreme Court. And in the past with Texas, there has always been federal oversight over the redistricting process. Democrats um, in, in recent decades have cried foul and said that redistricting was happening to the detriment of minority voters. Um, I would expect those claims to occur again in this political environment, but it's going to be bitter. But Unfortunately for Democrats, they're not going to be able to do much, um, and they're going to see the map design strongly to favor Republican interests. The one thing that is uncertain is how long the impact of redistricting will last. And there are some moderate Republicans, um, and I spoke to one, Ed Emmett, who was Lena Hidalgo's predecessor as county judge in Harris County, who predicted that the current redistricting advantage will only last a couple of sessions because of broader trends in urban voters and demographic shifts um, favoring the Democrats. And he says that unless Republicans start speaking about things that are interesting to moderates um, and not just the base of the Republican Party, they risk their future in Texas. That is a minority view, but it's one that I've been thinking a lot about since I held that conversation with him. Thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to think about what all this means for national politics. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. James Astle is The Economist's Washington bureau chief and our Lexington columnist. He's been watching what's been happening to the Republican Party ever since Donald Trump left the White House without acknowledging his election defeat. That issue of the election and its legitimacy, alas, is a cancer that is just spreading through the institutions of the party. Trump left office with a majority of Republican voters believing his lie that the election had been stolen by the Democrats. And that has now been either uh, taken up or apologised for by the Republican leadership in Congress, as we are now seeing in uh, this sorry drama of an apparently failed effort to get a bipartisan congressional commission to look at the events of the insurrection of January the 6th that that election lie led to. 
you drew a bit of a distinction there, James, between lawmakers who've taken up the big lie about the stolen election and those who've really embraced it. I think a lot of outsiders looking at the Republican Party in Congress and, and also in state houses you know, would like to know whether they really believe it. It seems to me that some really do, and some almost go out of their way to avoid having to deny it. And I'm wondering if there's any real practical difference there, or actually whether the two just amount to the same thing. A tiny number of uh, Republican congressmen can believe the palpable fiction that the election was stolen. Adam Kinziger, who's a a sort of never-Trump Republican uh, in the House, suggests that maybe maybe five Republican congressmen believe that nonsense. But the rest, including increasingly the congressional Republican leadership, teeter on the edges of that. They don't say that the election was stolen, but they say that there were problems in the election. So they, they keep alive the fiction, the big lie. They don't stand against it. And increasingly, it has become this organising principle within the party to the extent that I'm not really sure that there's an enormous difference between actively peddling conspiracy theories about the election and allowing those conspiracy theories to be the operative belief of the party that you lead. And what about Senate Republicans who've used the filibuster to prevent the setting up of a commission to look into what happened at January the 6th? What do you, what's your read on, on their position? The rationale goes like this. First, a commission would make the Republicans look bad just ahead of the midterms. And then, well, because that would help the Democrats, that must be the Democrats' main rationale for wanting the commission in the first place. Therefore, it's our political partisan duty to stand against the Democrats, and therefore we, we oppose the, the commission. That's the sort of uh, cognitive dissonance, I think, which allows reasonable, law-abiding, apparently constitutional conservatives to end up opposing what should be a no-brainer. There was a bipartisan congressional commission after John Kennedy's assassination after 9-11, there plainly should be one now, after one of the ugliest incidents in American politics since the founding of the Republic. John, what do you take from the non-evolution of the Republican Party since Donald Trump was defeated in the 2020 election? I suppose the most charitable way to think about it is that they really are in a bind, that Donald Trump is capricious and entirely self-interested and doesn't have any particular interest in conservative ideas or in the party's health or viability beyond what it can do for him. And his base comprises a large enough share of the party that he could effectively, or they, they believe he could effectively shatter it if he withdraws support. He could also imperil the career of any single member of Congress who stands up against him by supporting a primary challenger. And that presents a sort of first mover problem. It would be one thing if the party decided in toto that it had to move on, but nobody wants to be the first one to stick their neck out. And so they're stuck in this position where they still are bound to him. And I don't want to say that as though it's, it's, it's a thing that has happened to them, that has been the conscious choice of every member of Congress. They have bound themselves to him, and this is the consequence. They are now caught in having to profess belief in the big lie that the election was stolen from him, which in fact it was not. 
Do you think that even if the commission was approved and we saw a report, it would make any difference to Republican voters? If the commission is voted down, I don't think the Democrats will just, you know, up sticks and go home. I would expect them to form a House Select Committee that will have investigatory and subpoena power um, and will be far less concerned with bipartisanship than, than this commission would have been. So I think Republicans should be careful what they wish for and what they're going to vote down. I don't think that commission's verdict or the House Select Committee's report or, or, or whatever is produced will make a huge amount of difference to Donald Trump's hardcore base, but it still is worth getting on the historical record that this is what happened. These are what people saw at the time. I think there'll be some awkward sort of calls for Kevin McCarthy to testify about what Donald Trump told him. All of this is worth knowing and worth doing, even if it doesn't break Donald Trump's hold on the party in the in the near medium term. And John, when Donald Trump lost that presidential election in 2020, there was an argument that some people made that Trumpism couldn't really endure without Trump at the head of it. It turns out that actually you can have Trumpism without Trump, or at least Trumpism without Trump in the White House. You spent this week, as you mentioned earlier, reporting in Atlanta. How does Republican Party politics look look there? I mean, is it similar to what Alexandra has been writing about in Texas in terms of pursuing you know, Trumpian priorities, even though the man himself is no longer president? I think it's similar with one crucial difference. I say it's similar because fealty to Donald Trump remains a litmus test for Republicans here. Jeff Duncan, who is the lieutenant governor, his political career appears to be over because he's lukewarm on Trumpism. I would say the one crucial difference here is that in in Atlanta, the business community remains an incredibly powerful voice in shaping city and state politics. So what I've been reporting on here is, is, is a piece on how liberals and criminal justice reformers should respond to rising crime rates. The northern, mostly white, very wealthy section of the city known as Buckhead, um, there are people there who want to make it an independent city. The business community has been fairly quiet so far, but I would imagine that they come out, if not against it, then at least not in favor of it. And I think for that reason, the prospects of it happening are perhaps not slim, but it's not a foregone conclusion. They won't be as hands-off as they were. And so I think that there are still states in which you have that moderating voice. We see Trump's dominance in Texas right now playing out where he's likely to make an endorsement for the next attorney general, Ken Paxton, who's Texas's current AG, led the charge um, asking the U.S. Supreme Court to invalidate the Electoral College votes after the 2020 election. Uh, George P. Bush is uh, likely to run against him, the son of Jeb Bush. Um, And I think Trump is very much enjoying a Bush coming on bent knee to kiss his ring. um, And many think that it's Bush who will get Trump's endorsement. Um, And I think that shows how strong his power still is. There's a book to be written, isn't there, Alexandra? Maybe you ought to write it about the transformation of the Bush family once it moved from the East Coast to to Texas, that move that George H.W. Bush made, and the various ways in which George H.W., George W., and now George P. have had to maneuver and make accommodations with Texan conservative opinion in order to be successful in those states. And you have a microcosm there, really, of how conservatism in Texas has changed over you know, half a century or more. I I find it fascinating. And 
the Republican Party's hopes are going to continue to rest on Texas through 2022 and beyond. You might wonder, watching this legislative session, whether Republicans are focused enough on what most Texans actually want to carry on winning and being so successful statewide. But but I guess before 2022, they might do what they've done before and switch back to some more mainstream priorities, cutting taxes, more funds for schools, etc., In some ways, Republicans in Texas have the best of both worlds. They have an enemy in the White House, um, and they'll be able to run against Biden and Harris in 2022. Um, Yet they're also receiving a lot of federal stimulus money. So Texans are not necessarily feeling the effects of some of Texas's decisions um, as much. Times are good. Public schools are getting funding. And so I think it could be a while before Texans turn on the Republican Party. And for Texans, a lot depends on the border. Immigration is an incredibly important issue in Texas. Uh, So I think strong action by the White House or lack of action may well play into the results of the 2022 election. We should probably do a border episode sooner rather than later. Alexandra, you'll have to come back and do that with us, please. But before I let you both go, there's a quiz. And Alexandra, this comes with a trigger warning, which is that John Fasman has been on a roll on the quiz recently. So um, take a quick shot of coffee, do some stretching. Who's getting triggered by that? (laughs) (laughs) The Economist's report on the Republican seismic sweep in the 1994 elections stretched over four pages. The party retook the House of Representatives for the first time in 40 years. The paper drew attention to two big names from beyond Washington swept away in the tsunami. One was Governor Ann Richards of Texas, as we've discussed. Which other high-profile state governor lost in 1994? A man The Economist called liberalism's most brilliant orator. Mario Cuomo. Alexandra, do you want to jump in? I'm not going to challenge, John. I mean, I think your instinct is correct. It was indeed Mario Cuomo of New York. Two months later, Richards and Cuomo appeared together in a toe-curling TV commercial, joking about their career-ending election defeats. The ad ran during the 1995 Super Bowl. What snack were they advertising? I don't know what snack it was, but at first, I'm not familiar with the phrase toe-curling, and I thought they were advertising toe-curling for some reason. I couldn't figure out why. Can I deduct your point for that? Toe curling is a British phrase for when something's just so awkward that your body produces an involuntary spasm which results in in the curling of the toes. No, I get it now. I don't know what snack they're advertising. I did Doritos? I have no idea. Pringles? Fasma, I can't believe you fluked it. It was Doritos. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I feel like this quiz is rigged. I need an audit. That's the big lie again. I think we need a commission to look into it. The advert is well worth watching. The, it begins with Anne Richards saying, uh, I can't do the accent, but Alexandra, you could. With Anne Richards saying, I haven't seen a change this big since I was knee high to a June bug, which is just a great phrase. It wasn't the first or the last Super Bowl commercial starring political has-beens. Dan Quayle plugged Wavy Lay's crisps the year before, and Bob Dole appeared in not one, but two Pepsi ads. How do Texans feel about Doritos? Alexandra, I would have thought they might be a little bit snotty about them. Oh, no. Well, I'm married to a Texan, which is why we have Doritos against my better judgment. And our almost two-year-old brings them in at breakfast time, which is a (laughs) source of marital tension. Well, Alexandra, as Texas is so big on individual liberty, I think the only 
right response is to allow your son free reign when it comes to Dorito access. Alexandra, thanks for joining us this week. John, thank you too. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Thanks also to John Shields and to Nika Rofast for producing the podcast. If you like it, tell people and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. <laughs>